and welcome to episode 385 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Nathan Fox. With me is Ben Olson. We're the founders of LSATdemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily podcast. You can be LSAT famous. Uh, please share news and ask questions on our website, thinkinglsat.com. This show is going to air on Monday, January 16th, uh, a couple weeks until the January 2023 scores come out. Next deadline you should be looking at is March 2nd is the deadline to sign up for the April 2023 registration. You can go to lsat.link forward slash dates if you want to see all those registration deadlines. We've uh, got an email here at the top from Sean. The subject is overthinking questions. Hi, Ben and Nate. Lately, I've been having trouble with overthinking questions. I was typically scoring minus two to minus zero on logical reasoning, but I've been seeing regression lately. My latest, my last practice test was bad and I scored minus five on LR. Nate, would you say that's bad? Well, relatively bad. And it's all relative, right? Everything is yeah. relative. So sure, that is bad compared to your minus two to minus zero. But I mean, immediately, I also have to say that's one data point. One data point, there's fluctuation, I don't know. We're you missed a few. Like, you're not perfect. You never were perfect. You were, well, you were almost perfect, you know. You said between minus two and minus zero. So you're still missing some sometimes. If you're missing some sometimes, that means you're probably getting lucky on some sometimes. And my hypothesis would always be that in this one practice test, you just got unlucky and you got the minus five and it doesn't have to mean anything. But let's hear what... What else Sean says? Yeah, Sean says, I caught myself overanalyzing every, and that's in all caps, question, especially one to three star difficulty level questions that aren't supposed to be very difficult. I feel like I'm just too hyper aware of trap answer choices and it is killing me on tests. Please, again, all caps, give me some advice. Calm down. <laughs> like the all caps on the every and the please. It's like, oh, oh, all right. We can feel the stress emanating off of this email. Um, you know, take a deep breath and then take another deep breath. I, I don't think, you know, you haven't given me enough data to believe that there's a trend. All I'm looking at here is one bad section. That said, <laughs> well, if this persists, then I guess maybe you are overthinking things. What, what, what do you think about this, though? Hyper aware of trap answer choices. Really? If it's a trap, then you don't pick it. If you're hyper yeah. aware that it's a trap, then you go. Also, I just I guess I want to say, and I think, Ben, you agree with me. There's not really traps. It's not it's not really like that. Or you don't have to think no. of it that way. No, it's 90% of the time, right? When people get questions wrong, it's because they don't understand what was literally said either in the passage, the question, or the answers. There's something about what they read that they don't understand. They're reading it in a way that's not consistent with what's on the page. And if you unpack that, if you say, wait a sec, what's that literally saying? That's saying that, there's more tigers than there were last year, this year. Okay, what do you think of that answer now? And it becomes obviously correct or obviously wrong. So traps, how about just convoluted language that you need to unpack? Yeah, there's, right. 
Almost always, when people say they're overthinking or overanalyzing, almost always, I, after some talk with the person, my response is, you're, you're probably underthinking it. Like you just didn't think through that answer enough to realize that it's objectively wrong. The right answers are right. The wrong answers are wrong. Mm -hmm. So if you find yourself missing questions, then I mean, think about what you're doing there. You're, I, I have no doubt that Sean is frantic. I mean, that needs to be addressed, right? You got to calm down, Sean. You got to take it one question at a time. You got to read it more carefully. You got to just settle yourself so that you can find out how easy these questions actually are. I mean, you're like triple talking yourself into wrong answers on easy questions. Okay, so calm way down and focus on trying to solve the question. That means understand the argument, predict the answer. And then when you start reading answer choices, you have to be looking for reasons why the wrong answers are wrong. So if you're like realizing that it's a trap, well, okay, tell me what, tell me why it's wrong and then move on. You know, Sean, you got minus zero. You've gotten minus zero on some logical reasoning sections. You understand the vast, vast majority of what you're reading and what you're doing in this section. So I think you need to stop being so nervous. Start seeing yourself as the boss of this test. You can boss it around, especially for the first 20 or so questions. So just relax, see yourself for who you are. Don't give the test so much respect. You're, you're anxious for some reason yeah. and it's some misguided belief because it's false. Yeah. And, and the, and the right answer is right. The right answer answers the question and the wrong answers do not answer the question. I mean, they are wrong. So I don't care how attractive that answer is to you, or you think that, oh, that one's a trap. I mean, because my guess is what Sean's doing is he's not picking the obviously correct answers because he thinks it's a trap. That's what's happening here. He's high, he says hyper aware of trap answer choices, but really means <laughs> overly sensitive or overly concerned that the correct answer might be a trap. Right. And then like really not actually fairly considering the wrong answer that he ends up picking. Yeah. And, and I think what that... That frequently embodies itself in just picking answers that you just don't even understand. It's like this imposter syndrome thing that people get sometimes where they're like, well, that right answer is just too obvious or this answer is too obvious. So it must be a trap. So I'll just ignore that. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. well, except for it totally answers the question perfectly. Yeah. So maybe you shouldn't have ignored it. Yeah. And then they then they end up picking a wrong answer, very frequently it'll be the longest one, right? Super mm -hmm. convoluted, all kinds of this layers and just all this different meaning. And they don't take enough time to actually figure it out. That's where the imposter syndrome kicks in and they go, well, I'm not going to pick that other one because that one too, too good to be true. That's obviously a trap. And, you know, this test is tricky and hard. So I'm going to go over here and pick this other answer that I don't even really understand. Like maybe I latch yeah. on to one word of it and I like that one word or I like that one phrase or I like the first half of it. And then there's part of it that I don't understand, but I'll just pick it anyway because it feels like that must be because I'm trying to avoid a trap. <laughs> it's like, well, OK, you just 
totally trapped yourself because the LSAT is easy. It's easy, yeah. it's predictable, and you should really start expecting that. Um, you have every reason to expect that. Like you don't get minus zero out of luck. I mean, you might've yeah. had a little bit of luck, but you knew the answer on like 23 out of 25 of those questions. Yeah, just start thinking of the section as a bunch of mini tests. You have 25 mini tests, one question at a time. Take a deep breath. Whenever you feel yourself starting to think about how many questions you have left, how long it's been taking you, um, how much you're overanalyzing things, whatever negative thought you have, just take a deep breath and refocus on the question you're doing right now. And I'm sure you're going to crush it. Just crush that one question. Yeah. And, and it is critical that you start doing the test this way. You have to learn that you can solve one question at a time and you, you really do need to give up on the idea of finishing sections. I'm not saying you're not going to finish, but finishing is not your goal. Your goal is to finish one question and get it right. And, you know, when you miss five, you definitely shouldn't have finished the section. Yeah. Like you, cause you didn't do your work. You didn't solve those five. So you got to be more patient and stay there and just make sure you're getting it right. But you're making two mistakes every time you miss one of these questions, John. Like you're missing easy questions. You say it yourself. You're missing level one to three difficulty questions. And when you do that, you're you're neglecting an, a right answer that is probably obviously correct. You're also picking a wrong answer that is wrong. I mean, it's objectively wrong. And if you took more time, I think you would not be able to make that mistake. All right. Laura says, okay, so her email says, subject, law school as an older student. Hey, Ben and Nathan, I've been listening to the podcast for a couple months and I'm really enjoying it. It's refreshing to hear people talk so honestly. I'm 30 years old. I graduated from undergrad in 2015 and I'm currently studying for the LSAT, hoping to enter in 2024. All right, that sounds good. You'd apply, you know, this fall of 2023 to enter in 2024. I love that. All the podcast episodes I've heard feel geared toward people who are just exiting undergrad and applying for law school. Why do you think people get that impression, Ben? I don't know. Maybe because we talk about grades sometimes or things I mean, like we, that. We get a lot or, of emails from people who are still in undergrad, but like half our students are professional working people. And I went to law school a little bit later in life. Yeah. I was in my 30s. Ben, you went to law school in what, your late 20s? Yeah. So, I, yep. yeah, we certainly aren't trying to market or like to talk only to the K through JD folks. I had my first kid the first uh, semester of law school. So <laughs> Wow. Um, okay, so Laura continues, the advice has been super valuable, but I am wondering what you would have to say to candidates like me who are many years out of undergrad. I would say, don't worry about it. I have a master's nope. degree and... Am a working professional, plus I have a lot of travel and volunteer experiences. Will any of this make me a more compelling candidate, or does it really come down to UGPA and LSAT? My UGPA is 3.2, and my diagnostic was 157. Oh, I didn't shit. know that I wanted to go to law school until recently, so my, G my UGPA doesn't reflect that desire. In my case, do you think a personal statement slash letters of recommendation may hold more weight? Wow, we get this question over and over and <laughs> over again. And it's like, I, I guess we're not making ourselves clear. So 
first of all, being an older applicant helps you just because you're more mature. You can buckle down and focus on the LSAT. You might have more professional things to write about, but it's just a it's just a feather in your cap. It's not the key to success. The key is yes, your UGPA, your undergraduate GPA, and your LSAT score. Your UGPA is now set at three point two. So don't worry about that. Don't worry about your personal statement or your letters of recommendation. Not because you don't need to do them. You have to do them, but they're just not that important. The fact that you got a diagnostic of 157 is fucking amazing. <laughs> you will get, you, well, I can't guarantee it, but you should expect yourself to get into the 170s. Don't yeah. give up until you do. I, I think you have that capacity. So I'd be disappointed. If you came and studied with us with a 157 diagnostic and you didn't eventually end up in the 170s, I would definitely be disappointed in that outcome. Um, we can't make any guarantees. We don't know how hard you're going to work and we don't know how well you're going to take to the test. But 157 is a baller diagnostic. I mean, that's just awesome. And yeah. so from there, like we can get you into the 160s like tomorrow, I would think. And we could get you into the 170s eventually without too much stress. Um, they're still going to use your UGPA and your LSAT to create an index number for you. They turn every applicant into one number and it's a weighting of your LSAT and your GPA. But every school super heavily weights your LSAT and GPA in law school admissions. And you can't do anything about the UGPA, but you can do something about the LSAT. And everybody always wants to like, they, they get like anchored on their diagnostic and they think like that's where they're going to be. But yeah. that's not where you're going to be, Laura. You're going to be like, shooting for the moon people typically start between like 140 and one low 150s yeah right so yeah anything high 150s out of the box is like oh shit okay like you yeah you got it yeah no and, no go study don't waste like, that potential yeah and i just like your masters and your and your work experience great like maybe that gives you something to write about in your in your personal statement like your resume will look good your letters will look good but nobody gives a shit about any of that stuff it, They compared to LSAT and GPA. So you're going to get your LSAT and it's your LSAT, Laura, that's going to get you into the conversation. And I really do think you can get into the conversation at top law schools, maybe not Harvard, Stanford, Yale with that 3.2, but like schools on the borderline of top 14, top 10, you know, like I'd be shocked if UCLA doesn't give you a look. If you show up with a 175 and a 3.2, that's the type of applicant that wash you in St. Louis or UCLA or all of these like borderline top 14 schools are going to be like, OK, so you fucked up in undergrad. That's pretty common, though. And you now killed the LSAT. OK, we'll we'll look at you. And then, sure, all this other stuff is feathers in your cap. Yeah, I mean, you've said this a million times, but Laura, go to LSATdemon.com forward slash scholarships put in your 3.2, put in your 157, and then start ticking that number up. And you will see how schools that aren't likely to give you a scholarship at all will eventually start to give you full rides once you get higher. It won't take much, much work. And notice too, that on the scholarship estimator, we do not ask, are you 30 years old? Do you have <laughs> yeah. a master's degree? Right. Have you been working for how many years and what right. have you been doing? We don't care about that 
because you don't need that information to estimate whether or not you're going to get a full ride scholarship. Yeah, we're, we're good. The estimator is really good and getting better at predicting people's scholarship offers. And yeah, the, the inputs there are UGPA, LSAT, and a, a checkbox for URM, yes or no. And, and from that, we've, we do a real good job of estimating what, what people are going to get, which means, yeah, your master's and your working experience and all that stuff. Feathers in your cap. And that's, that's pretty it. much it. Yeah. Hey, so I'm at my office right now. I'm looking at, I'm looking outside the window. I'm inside a big red brick building. Okay. And because this question keeps coming up, I want to kind of come up with this analogy here. If, if I had a task of knocking down this building and I had a wrecking ball, right? I could use the wrecking <laughs> that sounds ball. Sounds good. Yeah. Or, or I could grab a, you know, kind of a big, <laughs> heavy hammer and start hitting at some of these bricks. And I feel like that's what people try to do, right? <laughs> they, they say, oh, I have this big task in front of me. I got to get into law school. How am I going to accomplish it? And they have this wrecking ball machine yeah. called the LSAT sitting next to them, but it looks kind of hard to operate. So they're like, yeah. okay, uh, wh what about that chisel over there? Can I, yeah. can I hack away at this building that way? Yeah, you can. And it will help. But is anyone going to notice? <laughs> I could chisel away at this building and all the people working here probably would have no clue that anyone was trying to knock down the building. I take one swing with that wrecking ball, people are going to turn their heads. And that's what the LSAT does. I, yeah, I agree. I will, I will allow your analogy. I think that makes perfect sense. <laughs> Thanks, Nathan. Thanks for well, asking uh, Eric to cut it out. <laughs> no, as a purveyor of analogies myself, I know that analogies are bullshit, you know, yeah, but yeah, they can yeah. be very useful sometimes for show, for like, as a demonstration of what we're talking about. And yeah, I mean, I actually think that this is maybe, you're maybe underselling it, right? It's not yeah. record, it's because it's not like a wrecking ball versus sledgehammer. It's like wrecking ball versus, you know, carving your way out like Andy Dufresne, tunneling <laughs> out with a fucking, with a spoon, spoon that you got yeah. from the commissary. You know, it's yeah. like the, the LSAT is going to just totally break down walls for you. Yeah. Um, and that's, by the way, my argument for why the LSAT is good for diversifying law schools, because- yes. You know, like Laura, you don't have this pedigreed undergraduate experience like so many of the K through JD kids have. And you didn't plan on going to law school since you were born. You never like me. You never planned on going to grad school at all. You fucked around in undergrad. You didn't get that great of grades. But the LSAT is this amazing wrecking ball equalizer. Mm -hmm. And so just like don't rest. Please don't rest on your laurels because I don't think Laura is necessarily guilty of this, but I do know that other students are. We get lots of emails about these other factors. We get emails about resumes, work experience, master's degrees, diversity, and, you know, all that stuff. It's like, yeah, yeah, great. You've got these other things going for you. Cool. Can you operate the wrecking ball, though? Yeah. Like we're hiring people who can operate the fucking wrecking ball. Yeah. So I don't care how good your other credentials are. If you can't figure out the wrecking ball, you're not, that's, that ain't it. And the LSAT demon is dedicated to showing you how to operate that machine step by step. Walk up the ladder, sit in the chair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> turn Here's it on. where the ignition is. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay, love it. All right. Thanks, Laura. You want to read this one from Anonymous? Yeah, the subject is LSAT writing sample. I'm confused about the LSAT writing sample. In my limited research, it appears that the writing sample isn't given any weight in admissions and people say applicants should just quickly crank it out and move on. But if it has no value, what is the purpose of it? Why do law schools want a writing sample that they're going to ignore? We already give them one or more writing samples with the personal statement and optional essays, so why do they want one more? I just don't understand the need for the writing sample. Any insight on why this sample exists and how we should approach it would be appreciated. I, I, I think that, well, I don't, I don't really know. We, we could speculate. We'd have to go back. Somebody should do the research and go back and like find the notes that, you know, when they announced this, that they were adding the writing sample to the LSAT. We should go find what their justification was at the time. I thought I've heard two official explanations, one being, look, writing is part of the legal experience. Yes, you do submit a personal statement, but it's not the same as seeing someone write something in a timed environment under the same conditions as every other applicant. And so maybe it's their attempt at judging somehow a skill that is related to the law. Um, I've also heard that law schools are interested in whether you had help on your personal statement and they can look at your writing sample and see if it's vastly different. Of course, it's not going to be as good as your personal statement, which you had time to edit and review and get feedback on. But is it so different that it's just highly unlikely that you had anything to do with the personal statement that you submitted? Um, I suspect that those are both the goals that were thought of when they came up with it. Whether schools actually use it that often may just come down to individual cases in which they're actually concerned, uh, either about your writing ability or your <laughs> honesty. Right. Like, let's think about how a savvy admissions officer would use it. Um, depending on what kind of school you're at, I would think that the majority of admissions folks are going to just be like, yeah, we don't care about that because we need to boost our LSAT and GPA profiles, right? Yep. Like as we were just talking about, this is a chisel. This is we got to play the rankings game. <laughs> so can people operate the wrecking ball or not? Yeah, and don't really care about this other thing because the writing sample is not. You know, that's not even the spoon to carve yourself out. That's I don't know what that is. That's <laughs> it's a plastic a spoon. <laughs> yeah, a plastic spoon. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, let me put it this way. Your writing sample is never, ever, ever getting you in. No, but, but it could get you out. So you don't ignore totally. it. You don't write shit. You don't write literal swear words, as I've heard some people do. <laughs> yeah, or a plea <laughs> for admissions. Like, some, yeah. like oh. I, they use it as an opportunity for, they like, they ignore the assignment and they write up, like that's, so for weeding out crazy people, I could see it being a really good yeah. tool. And, yeah. you know, Ben, if we ever start our law school, um, we'll be looking at them for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because I can read one sentence from you and tell whether you took it seriously. And I can frequently tell whether you are bad at English in one sentence. Yeah, absolutely. Are you, do you have attention to detail? Are you familiar with the rules of written English? It's just a proxy test of other yeah. skills. Yeah, I would guess that schools might use it if you had really bad undergraduate grades or if they're admitting you like, you know, they're they're hoping that you're going to pay full tuition. Right. Like yeah. you're below their LSAT, you're below their GPA median. 
and they're just, and they're like, they look at your personal statement and it's like, great. And they go, hmm, you know, spe- like someone coming from out of country, mm. you know, like I don't want to I, I shouldn't say any country in particular, but I'm just like imagining some some rich foreign country that sends students here to get uh, to get graduate degrees. Right. Yep. Yep. Well, if you come from one of those countries and it's like your resume, your your or sorry, your uh, your academic record and your LSAT don't really justify like they don't really look great. But the school's like, well, we need people to pay tuition. So we got to admit some of these people. Then I could see them maybe looking at your your writing sample, just going, well, I, I know they couldn't have gotten help on this. So let's see if they can string two sentences together in in this writing sample. Sure. And you might yeah. think that's cynical or whatever that, that that they would be using it in that way, but that's look if you have money and you're trying to get into school and all you care about is getting in, you are going to pay someone to help you write or to actually write your personal statement. Yeah, that right. happens, of course. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's a legit concern on their part, and this way they can get a writing sample from you that you could not have gotten outside help on. Yeah. 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 Or I theory in theory. <laughs> You just you don't need to worry about it. Like you yeah. you either can or cannot string two sentences together in written English. And if you can't, then this is not a good field for you. But the vast majority of our students, like our our, you know, people who are going to score 160 on the LSAT, I don't think you have anything to worry about. Just do the assignment. And I will point out that this is just one of a million stupid little hurdles that you're going to have to jump through along the way. Yep. Uh, wait till you've been in school before. You know how it is. You know how professors make you do a bunch of real dumb shit. Well, you're going to you're about to have three full years of that. Yeah. If this is keeping you up at night, then law is not for you. <laughs> yeah. Our our recommendation is you watch one of our videos and then you just immediately take the writing sample and you never do it again. And you just don't have to think about it. It's really not a big deal. It's a super formulaic, ultra easy essay to write. You don't have to know anything. You just have to follow the directions. So you can watch one of our 15 minute videos on how to do it. Take it. Be done with it. Thanks for writing in, though. Yep. All right. This next one came. I guess it came straight to me. It's just an update. Um Wanted to give a mid-cycle update for the podcast so far. I've gotten two T14 acceptances and a full ride at Wash U. This came in like a week or so ago. So early January, this person has two top 14 acceptances and that full ride at Wash U in St. Louis. There, there goes Wash U, continuing yep. to aggressively try oh, to get people. Oh, they're out there, man. Yeah. Yeah. If you can, if you can handle St. Louis, Wash U is a great place to go to law school for free. Anyway, I have a three-point mid GPA below all of the T14 25th percentiles. Okay. But a high 170s LSAT thanks to the demon. I'm waiting on some of the top schools to get back to me, but turning down a full ride is going to be hard to do. Exclamation point. Thanks for all the help. That's from good. Anonymous. It should be hard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some schools going to have to knock your socks off, like make it, you know, make it obviously better for you to go to their school yeah and um like i know wash U graduates who are gainfully employed um we had an interview recently i think it went out on lsat demon daily but i interviewed uh hannah chanin um 
She went to Wash U for free. She got out and worked in big law for a year-ish. She hated it. She quit. She's now in-house counsel at a genetics company or 23andMe. You guys have heard of 23andMe. Yeah. So that's a home run of a success story. I mean, she ended up with a great career and no law school debt at Wash U. And so, you know, like maybe Harvard, Stanford, Yale admits you and you go, okay, well, that's, you know, a way of promoting myself to big leagues that I don't have any other way of promoting myself to. Sure. And maybe that's worth it. But like, I can't imagine, you know, what Duke comes back with a with a like, oh, you can come here and pay us forty thousand, fifty thousand dollars a year. I can't imagine even turning half. down Wash U for that. Yeah. Even half. You have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Is it that much better? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks for the update, Anonymous. Um, you know, that's why we advise everybody to apply early, apply broadly, right? This is those applications were in in the fall. And now smack beginning of the year, we already have multiple offers to choose from. Can you imagine applying now? And competing with Anonymous, who already applied three months ago and already has offers in hand, that's just a terrible strategy. Yeah. All right. You want to read this one from Noah? Yep. The subject is engineering and law school. Hey, Ben and Nathan, I'm a student studying electrical engineering at BYU, and I'd like to apply for law school this upcoming September. Okay. You're going to apply this fall for the following fall. Yeah. My diagnostic score was a 159. Shit, we've got two high diagnostic scores on this <laughs> episode. Yeah. That's crazy high. And after studying with the demon for a couple of weeks, I'm scoring in the mid-160s. I'd like to score in the mid to high 170s to become a competitive applicant at Harvard. Um, okay. Right now, my undergraduate GPA is a 3.97. All right, you're still in the running for Harvard, that's for sure. I'm not sure if I've talked about this I'm not sure if you've talked about this on the podcast before, but do law schools account for applicants' undergraduate degree subjects? Yes. Yes, Slightly. Slightly. Uh, Electrical engineering is not an easy program, so I think that's only going to help you. In other words, do they care about whether somebody studied English or political science versus engineering or math? Yes, they do. Engineering and math are harder. I'm not planning on receiving any kind of special treatment because I majored in electrical engineering. My goal is to get the absolute best LSAT score I can get. And by the way, Noah, your goal should be to continue to maintain that GPA and increase it if possible. So I hope that's part of your goal. I was just curious about this topic because I've heard different things from different people and I wanted to get your guys' thoughts. You know, in some ways, Noah, I, I think you might be focused or ruminating on the wrong thing. I mean, you already are an electrical engineer, so who cares whether it helps you or not? Yeah, it's that thing again. Yeah. Everybody loves to talk about the soft factors. Everybody yeah. loves to they they always want it's like they want a pat on the head, you know? Yep. yep. Like yes, I'll give you your pat on the head. Now go work on the LSAT. Yeah. Which I know Noah is actually doing. I'm not I'm not trying to be mean to Noah. Um, and in Noah's case, go work on your GPA and possibly before you focus on the LSAT. Like if you end up delaying for a year, but you bring your GPA up even higher, that's going to matter. From a 3.97. Yeah, um, that'd be hard to do. But 
you uh, certainly <laughs> yeah. don't want to let it fall, right? Like yes. don't start getting Bs now or don't yeah. even start getting A minuses now because that 3.97 will fall quickly mm -hmm. and potentially could be below Harvard's 50th if you slip at all. So I would say keep up the awesome grades and then, yeah, you get anything in the 170s and you are definitely going to be a competitive applicant at these schools. I can't guarantee, we can never guarantee that you're going to get into schools like that. But with a 3.97 and a 173, I'd be shocked if you don't get some offers from like top five types of schools. Yeah. I'm, I'm just looking at the estimator right now. And then I clicked on the 509 report for Harvard. I was just curious. The 50th percentile GPA is 3.92. The 75th Damn. percentile is 3.99. So a single A minus could possibly drop Noah out of their 50th percentile. So it is critical, Noah, that you maintain that stellar GPA. I mean, you're killing it, man. Like that's that's just that's amazing. So yeah, keep yep. that up. Don't even worry about the LSAT right now if you don't have to. Although if you're trying to apply this September, I guess you maybe do have to think about the LSAT right now. But do not let those grades slip. You're an excellent applicant. I expect to hear back from you like going to a top, top, top school. Um, and, yeah. and, and scholarships probably in the top 14 with those kinds of numbers. Yeah. I mean, one way to think about this is that um, the LSAT is a wrecking ball. The GPA is the other wrecking ball. <laughs> yeah. It's just that for some people that's out of commission and you can't do anything about it anymore. It's It's been sold or something like that. It's, yeah, it's your done. first wrecking ball broke down. and But yeah, Noah's got both wrecking balls going. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, you can, that's... <laughs> don't, yeah, don't waste it. Cool. Hello, my name is Samaya, and I've, it's been a goal of mine to have a, a career as an attorney for some time now. I struggle with studying for my LSAT and feeling overwhelmed with so much content, but after looking at the LSAT demon, I would like to try it. I graduated from college in 2020 and have put off taking my LSAT seriously for a while. I'm currently doing an AmeriCorps service year and wanted to ask if I would be eligible for a discounted class slash study plan, I have an official fee waiver letter from my service site that I can send along in an email as well. Thank you, uh, Samaya. I wanted to put this on the agenda because I just wanted everybody to remember that we do have a fee waiver program. You have to just apply for the LSAC fee waiver. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if we have a link for that. I bet if you just Google LSAC fee waiver, it just comes right up. But um, please, Samaya, apply for that LSAC fee waiver. When you get the LSAC fee waiver, you just send us documentation of that and you get um, four months of our basic plan for 30 bucks, which is yeah. money that goes straight to the LSAC, not us. So essentially, if you qualify for the LSAC fee waiver, we'll give you all of Demon Basic for four months for essentially free. Yeah. Um, we also will give you 20% off of a higher plan if you want to do more with us. But uh, yeah, get that fee waiver because it'll save you thousands of dollars on law school admissions and potentially hundreds of dollars on LSAT prep with us. So give that a shot. This uh, New York Times article was put here by, oh, by you. Okay. Yeah. So I read this this morning. The title is How to Focus Like It's 1990. The subtitle is smartphones, pings, and Insta everything have shortened our attention spans. Get some good old school concentration back with these tips. The article is by Dana Smith. 
we'll put a link in the show notes. I wanted to talk to you about the third tip. So the first two, I'll just say really quickly. The first one was understand what's distracting you. The article talks about how distracting notifications are. People aren't even aware of it now. Um, the second tip was to take a timed tech break. And the author was telling people to silence their phones, put them down, and then go away for 15 minutes, um, and then increase that over time. <laughs> I did think about that. I uh, My wife leaves her phone around the house all the time. Like, she'll go on a walk, and she won't even have her phone. And it, it always surprised me because I, like, if I'm leaving somewhere, it's weird to leave without my phone. Oh, phone, wallet, keys. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I'm trying to break that habit and just be like, it doesn't fucking matter. Like, <laughs> I, I'm not that important. I don't need to be contacted right now. And I even don't need I don't the use ability it. to Google things or check things. I mean, yeah. How often are you like on a walk and you're like checking your email on your phone? Like for what? Yeah. Yeah. For what? Just because you're bored for a second. Yeah. yeah. Put put the phone away. Turn off all the notifications. We've talked about that a million times. But yeah, see if you can deprive yourself of your phone for a little while. That yeah. would be a good a good plan. I mean, <laughs> what's the thing again with Proctor U where you're like, what are their rules about the phone? Because I remember some hilarious things about the phone. Like you have to have your phone off. I don't remember this. Yeah. Oh, there's. I wouldn't there's, be surprised. <laughs> no, there's stories that are hilarious where it's like you're supposed to have your phone off, and I think in a different room. Mm, mm -hmm. But I've heard of applicants or candidates, you know, people taking the test, having to go retrieve their phone from another room to bring it in to show it to the proctor to show it to them that it's off. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to leave and put it back. <laughs> <laughs> How hard is it to just have an old device that you don't use anymore? Or yeah, uh, yeah. like, uh, it's just so stupid. You <laughs> Getting used to doing your test with your phone off. I mean, like, really, people people definitely prep and they get they get in they get um, interfered with all the time. Like having messages on a Mac, right? You have messages turned if you have messages on. So now someone texts you and you get a little notification, even if it's only the tiny little badge that appears on the messages app yeah. down at the bottom yeah. of the screen. Well, next thing you know, you're what you're it crossed your mind, right? If it crossed your mind, that's bad. So that's if it. you hear You've a ping, been distracted. Yeah. Yeah. And if you hear a ping in another room, that's bad. It's bad, even if you resist the urge to go check it. The it's fact that you have to exercise mental energy to resist the urge is itself a huge yep. problem. Yep, I think you wanna turn your phone off. Off, silence yeah. it entirely. See, I have all that stuff off now, so it actually surprises me. I forget how much that is just the default mode for a lot of people I, and apps. When I hang around with people who have their, they have audible text message notifications on their phone. Oh my gosh, ding, I can't ding. believe it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like, really? That's how you live all the time? Like you just, have the dinging going off all the time. Wow. I mean, yeah, that can't be good <laughs> cognitively. All right. What's this I mean, thing you wanted to talk anyways, about? Anyways, yeah. yeah. So the, the first tip is, hey, look, notice what's distracting you. Become aware of that. Then take these time to tech breaks. Get used to letting go of your tech. And then the third tip, um, and this is all to counter the fact that people's attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. The initial article talks about how 
in the 90s, people used to read things for like four minutes and now it's down to like 45 seconds or something like that. This author has this tip for deep reading. And so (laughs) maybe you should read it and then we can talk about what you think of it. So this whole thing, the nature, quote, the nature of a screen, if you just think about it, is to constantly refresh the information, Dr. Wolf said. There is a psychological mindset to go from the start to the finish as quickly as possible. So I read that and it sounded like bullshit to me. Like it, it, well, it just sounds like it's, it sounds like a conclusion. Okay. What do you mean the very nature of, or sorry, the nature of a screen is to constantly refresh the information? Con- yeah, maybe Why? the maybe the information <laughs> here isn't being conveyed very well, but I do agree that the the scrolling nature of like screens these days, people tend it, it invites them to to skim, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Traditionally, it says, this is back to the article. Traditionally, our brains tend to read print materials more slowly, in part because we were more likely to go back and double check what we just read. But why? What do you mean, We, in part because we were more likely to go back and double check what we just read? I, I don't understand where that comes from. And, but then the, you know, the author continues, assuming that it's true. The extra yep. time lent itself to sophisticated mental processes like critical analysis, inference, deduction, and empathy. I read that and I said, well, I mean, sure, if you actually are spending more time on it, then I would think you're going to read it better. Yeah. Unfortunately, it says, simply printing out an article or opting for a paperback book instead of your Kindle won't guarantee that you suddenly become a more engaged reader. And I go, yeah, no shit. I'm still I'm still skeptical of this idea that people spend less time reading it because it's on a screen. But now you're telling me, oh, but if you print it out, that won't do it. And I and I say, well, yeah, that fits with my hypothesis, which is that this is all a lie. Yeah. Our brains adapt to read in the style of the medium we use most often. And chances are you spend a lot more time reading on a screen than you do on paper. As a result, Dr. Wolf said, you you likely now read in print the way you read on a screen. Uh, Okay, (laughs) if you say so. Quote, many people have lost the ability to really immerse themselves, she said. We have developed a cognitive impatience about our reading. What do you think? You don't think Uh, this is true? It does seem like people demand shorter articles. Think about the uh, all the TikToks, shorts on YouTube. I I just I'm going to push back on the screen thing. Like I read books on Kindle. I read the damn book on Kindle. I don't demand that it's shorter. I don't think I read it any faster. I'm I'm reading for the story or I'm reading to learn so, something. So maybe the cause is wrong here. Maybe the reason why we read faster is wrong, but um well, you're not reading seem... books on TikTok. You know, you're not reading you're probably not reading books on your phone. You're probably not reading books on your laptop. You're scrolling Instagram or you're, you know, you're on your phone and you're scrolling Twitter, you're scrolling Instagram, you're scrolling TikTok. What, like, I, totally. Yeah. I get it. But that's also not like real reading. Yeah. But it, it affects probably how you consume content, including reading on your phone and then by extension everywhere else. Right. People yeah, are just becoming According to less... Dr. Well, Dr. Wolf. OK, so to get back to the practice of what Dr. Wolf calls deep reading, try to dedicate at least 20 minutes a day to reading a physical book. Again, I say bullshit because Kendall is going to be just fine. Okay. 
You're reading a fucking book if you're reading a Kindle. <laughs> you're not doing that because you're trying to get through it as fast as possible. You're there because you're reading a book. So this, okay. this is like old person behavior detected from Dr. Wolf. Um, you're just like, oh, it's a screen, so it's inherently bad. I, I don't believe you, Dr. Wolf. Okay. But, but, I, but I'll take the point of read a damn book. I'll totally yeah. take that point. I, I'm actually sympathetic to this argument because I do believe the context in which you develop certain habits is going to subtly encourage you to re continue those habits. Read a book. Uh, I'm going to say that. Okay. Uh, combined with Dr. Mark and Dr. Rosen's tips to fight distraction, which I guess were above about like turning off your phone and shutting off your notifications yeah, yeah. and stuff, right? Start with something you want to read for pleasure. Love that tip. Absolutely love that tip. Do not read boring, highfalutin, complicated shit that you don't enjoy. Read something you like to read. Set an alarm for 20 minutes, put your phone on silent, and make yourself read slowly and deliberately. Okay. I just hate this idea of like tr special reading. Like just read a damn book. I don't know. Okay, anyway, don't get frustrated if you're not absorbed right away. When Dr. Wolf tried this experiment on herself, it took her two weeks before she was able to fully engage with and enjoy what she was what she was reading. I give no credit to that whatsoever. Like Dr. Wolf already has this hypothesis. Oh, and now she's providing anecdotal evidence about her own reading experience. <laughs> Fuck off. It's like totally unscientific. No. Okay, last line. Even if you're yep. not an avid reader, the exercise can help you regain the ability to focus deeply on what you're doing. There's a lot of power in being able to feel that you can control your attention, Dr. Mark said. You're in control of your behavior. Okay, so you clearly find this to be bullshit, but I think that your reading style is much different than most people's. I think you're in the habit of reading carefully, thoughtfully. You're engaged with what you're reading. Well, I suspect most of our listeners... I don't disagree can't do that at all. I don't disagree. I just think that this whole thing could be boiled down into read a fucking book. Just read a book and, and read it carefully because what they're no. trying to fight is people not trying to like get bored, get antsy, check their phone. Right. Like put your turn off your phone and read a book for pleasure. That's what I want you to do. That's my tip. <laughs> Like, I don't need you to torture yourself. I don't need you to have a timer. Like, I don't want you doing this with like, I don't want you gritting your teeth while you do it. I want you to get a book that you enjoy. And if you can't find a book that you enjoy, then I'm going to go ahead and say you're not a lawyer. That just doesn't feel like a lawyer to me. You, you, you should get pleasure from words. <laughs> and... And books are amazing, and there are a million different kinds. You can read fiction or nonfiction. You can read young adult fiction. You can read romance novels. You can read sci-fi. You can read Stephen King horror shit. You can read pop culture airport books. I don't care what you like, but just find a damn book that you like to read and read that. So that's kind of the key to what you're saying here. Not just read a book, but... Keep trying until you find books that you're interested in. Right. And if you don't enjoy it, like if your friend gave you The Sound and the Fury or something and you're like, whoa, this is like just too much. I can't. OK, well, OK, fine. Then don't. That's not the one. Yeah. Like try something else.
there are many, there are so many wonderful, amazing books. I mean, I could recommend a thousand different books of all different types, but like, I really would probably start with some young adult fiction type of stuff. Like, have you ever read Harry Potter? Well, go read it. Like people who read Harry Potter are better at the LSAT because they're readers. Oh, you hate Harry Potter? Okay, then read anything else. I don't care, but just read a book. So finding time to sit down and read can be challenging for people. When do you read? At night. I read before bed bed every night, yeah. 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 It's a good way to wind down versus looking at a show. More bright light. Yeah, and I have a Kindle Paperwhite. You know, it's already really soft light on your eyes, but I have it set in the dark mode. So it's even softer on the eyes. And it's just like, yeah, you I eventually I'll get sleepy and I'll put it away. If it's something super fascinating, it might keep me up a little bit. But I know I'm working out the reading muscle. Yeah. And if the more you work out that reading muscle, the better you're going to be at reading. So I'm all you know, don't don't get me wrong. Like. To the extent that this that this article is like turn off your phone 100 percent yeah turn off your phone and read a book i'm all in cool we only have one more lengthy item on the agenda yeah and it is a a statement of Uh, why does it say of wow from (laughs) i know a statement of chancellor and dean david fagman this is coming from (laughs) The newly named this guy, how does he has the ego to just think that a statement from him is worthy of this grand. I was shocked that this email didn't have his picture because most of the time it's got his picture, like his his like glamour shot right up at the top. And then it goes into his screed. But here it's just screed. Can you define that? Screed? I'd have to look it up, but I think it's... uh, Here, hold on. It's not similar to tirade, right? So screed is a long speech or piece of writing, typically one regarded as tedious. Ooh, yeah. (laughs) And we've read many David Fegman uh, emails on this show. Yeah, and he is a screedster, that's for sure. Yeah. All right, so here's a... Yeah, coming from the annoyingly named, by the way... UC Law San Francisco, Ugh. which used to be my alma mater, UC Hastings. Hastings, the old dude Hastings was like literally responsible for genocide. Yeah. And because of that, they took 10 years to resist and finally changed their name away from Hastings. And now he acts like he's super proud of changing the name away from Hastings. Of course. He was one of the pers- people who opposed it, right? Of course, because yeah. fundraising, you yeah. know, it's expensive to change your brand. And all the older folks probably resisted that, right? Oh, of course. Everybody fought it kicking and screaming until they were forced to do it. And then now they make it sound like it's their idea. Yeah. But anyway, okay. this is a different topic because what this is, is about U.S. News and World Report. Okay. So I find it interesting because this is what a mediocre law school thinks about this whole new, you know, news about Harvard, Yale, Stanford dropping out of, you know, they're not going to participate yeah. in the ranking game anymore, which doesn't yeah. mean they're not going to be ranked. It just means that they're not going to fill out the survey for U.S. News. 
Yep. So U.S. News responded by changing their, we talked about this on the last show, U.S. News is changing their um, methodology. They're dropping the whole um, reputation. Yeah. They're not, and now I think that's why Hastings, or sorry, UC Law San Francisco is doing what they're doing, is because I think they were benefiting from that reputational thing. Mm. There's a lot Mm. of like crusty 80-year-olds who remember when Hastings was the shit. Yeah. Hastings is no longer the shit. Hastings is ranked 51st in the country by U.S. News. And, you know, it's a regional law school. It's okay, but it's nothing special. Yeah. And (laughs) that reputational thing with judges and law school faculty from other schools, I think Hastings was benefiting a lot from that reputational bonus. Because as soon as that change happened, then now Hastings is now now they're getting on board. Right. They didn't Mm -hmm. get on board. Two months ago, when Harvard said, we're not going to fill out these surveys anymore, they Mm -hmm. waited until U.S. News changed its methodology. And now they're they're not happy with the methodology change. Mm. At least that's (laughs) certainly the way it looks. But anyway, let's I'll read some of this uh, screed. Yeah. Okay. Again, this is Chancellor Andine David Fegman from uh, UC Law San Francisco. The new rankings methodology announced earlier this week by U.S. News and World Report in a recent email to law school deans, fails to address many of the most fundamental flaws with its ranking system and, in many ways, compounds them. As a result, UC Law SF, formerly formerly UC Hastings Law, will no longer provide institutional data to U.S. News for use in its law school rankings, at least until such time as U.S. News truly addresses the concerns that we and other law schools have long shared with them. That's two long ass sentences in the first paragraph. You also <laughs> skipped over kindly his attempt to define US News and World Report by putting in parentheses US News. This is not a legal memorandum. <laughs> and we know that and you, even when if you it say were, US News later, we will know what you're talking about. Yeah. Even if it were, when we were when I was doing legal writing consulting, we were telling people to take these definitions out. If it's obvious, you don't need to tell the judge is another human being who lives on this planet. And when you say U.S. News and World Report and then later say U.S. News, no one in their right mind is going to go, hmm, what are you referring to? I am. I'm lost and confused. It's unnecessary garbage. Yeah. 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 Okay. The new methodology U.S. News sketched will not because they didn't really say right. U.S. News didn't actually give very specific guidance. They just said yeah. we're going to get rid of this or we're going to reduce this reputational thing. Yep. And that's because there's many of the big players who are not even going to be filling out these reputational surveys anymore. And so mm-hmm. they said, OK, so we're going to downgrade our reputational thing. Yep. Fegman admits that this is a sketch, but then Fegman is also going to complain about it in specific ways. The new methodology U.S. News sketched will not reflect the true excellence of a school like UC Law SF. So pure conclusion there. (laughs) That is because U.S. News apparently plans to continue to apply a single cookie cutter formula to the nation's wide variety of law schools without actually measuring the degree to which law schools achieve their core mission elements and without properly standardizing to account for variations in student populations, geographic regions, or law schools' success in placement in specific law job markets. Whoa, you did it with one breath. Nice work. (sighs) I've been working on my breathing. 
Hey, you know what's funny about this is as much as I hate the rankings or don't care about the rankings, the whole point of a ranking <laughs> is to standardize that and was bring everybody well. <laughs> bring everybody onto the same. <laughs> how do you evaluate them if you're going to have a different evaluation for right. each fucking school? Right. You can't reflect our true measure because you guys are ranking from one to a hundred and you, <laughs> that can't possibly reflect our true excellence. It's a cookie cutter formula. No, it's not. Yeah. They keep changing it every year. What are you talking about? Cookie cutter. He's just mad about rankings. Like he doesn't think yeah. there should be rankings. Apparently he's going to go down. So he's mad. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Also, sorry, I got to take a breath. Also, by continuing to emphasize entering metrics, the method U.S. News announced doubles down on the rankings penalty imposed on schools that prioritize diversity and access. So he doesn't want them to be using LSAT and GPA. That's metrics. Mm -hmm. He doesn't like metrics. And he's calling that a penalty yeah. for schools so that not, prioritize diversity objective. and access. Penalty. <laughs> Penalty? There's not a diversity penalty. They're ranking based on LSAT and GPA. It's a point if you have good metrics. <laughs> Finally, he says, by continuing to assign precise numeric rankings, U.S. News continues to suggest, incorrectly in our view, that meaningful distinctions can be made between schools that earn a few more or less points based on the limited that should have said fewer, by the way. This guy doesn't have an editor. For like a highfalutin lawyer guy, why doesn't he get an editor? No, he has an editor, but the editor is afraid to make any edits because they I all see. get rejected. Yeah. Right. That's definitely fewer there, not less. Points are discrete. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> U.S. News continues to suggest, incorrectly in our view, that meaningful distinctions can be made between schools that, end, that earn a few more or fewer points based on the limited factors U.S. News now includes in its formula. So again, just mad about the rankings, right? Like, yeah. I don't like it that you're ranking from one to a hundred. Yep. What's Fagman want? He wants them ranked tier one, that's schools one through 51. <laughs> tier two, that's ranked 52 through 101. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. And we're in tier one, damn it. Fagman says, simply reducing the number of data points the rankings consider and varying how they are weighted does nothing to address these fundamental problems. So, okay, after one long, sorry, two long ass paragraphs, to sum it up, the fundamental problems are, he just doesn't want ranking, period. That's what it seems to me. Or he wants like a, a, an array of rankings. Like, he really does like to focus on, hey, uh, UC Law SF is number three in bioengineering. <laughs> More like number 17 in yeah. whatever. But yeah, he has yeah. in previous screeds, he has gone, he loves those like, oh, but let's talk about your specialty rankings for this. And then he doesn't complain about specific numeric rankings at all. As a matter of fact, he trumpets specific numerical ranking in the places where he's doing well. Yeah. Does U.S. News have, or does anyone have rankings for, like, Dean Screeds? <laughs> this would be number one, like, perennial, just champion on the Screeds, yeah. yeah. You'll see that what this, you know, he's a lawyer, and so yeah. what this is, is, like, I didn't do it, and even if I did, you can't prove it, 
And even if you can prove it, I don't deserve punishment for these reasons. Yeah. You know, it's like going with all possible defenses. Yeah. Which makes it obvious that you're just you don't like the rankings. But anyway, I mean, because you're falling in the rankings. By the way, this is a school that has been falling in the rankings. And in my I, I would predict they will continue to fall in the rankings. Yeah. Um, because you're insane to go to Hastings if you could go to Berkeley instead. Like nobody who gets into Berkeley goes to Hastings. And that school is literally visible from the Hastings campus. Well, keep in mind, too, if if LSAT and GPA are just a measure of selectivity and your <laughs> and the rankings are going more towards those metrics and you're worried, well, that reflects that you can't meet the bars set by these relatively objective measures. We didn't make the system, but LSAT and GPA are the best predictors of how people are going to fare in law school. Like nope. LSAT and GPA predict more than 50% of your 1L grades, or at least that's what Dean Z says from Michigan. Yeah, I think actually Dean Fagman here is essentially doing what a lot of applicants do, and that is demand respect for soft factors. Right. Like, look at how big our building is. I don't understand why that's not more important. Or look how yeah. much reputation we have. Why isn't that important? Well, because maybe it's not. It gets more absurd as we get deeper into this. Um, okay. And some of the points I think we're going to agree with, but the, some of the points are like, okay, well, now you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Like, it's just clear mm -hmm. that you're not intellectually consistent with yeah. these arguments you're making. But anyway... Okay. Okay, I, I briefly touch on each of these criticisms below. And so now we have some, um, some sections here. There are five main points with bolded headings. Bolded the, italicized headings. Bolded italicized, thank you, headings. The first one says, failure to track mission elements. The old and new U.S. news ranking elements fail to track what most law schools identify as their core mission elements comma, teaching, comma, research, comma, and public service. There needed to be a colon there, right? Yep. After elements. Yes. Yeah, you're going to define what elements they are. I really don't know why this guy sends out shit that's not edited. But I, I like your hypothesis of there is an editor who's too afraid to make an edit. Yeah. Okay, so U.S. News fails to track... Core mission elements like teaching, research, and public service. How does he want them to track that? I know. How would you measure that? How would you measure like the number of public service hours? I guess. I don't know how you measure the quality of teaching. Student surveys, which are highly suspect and biased. <laughs> There's all, yeah, totally game. That teacher was easy. So I yeah. liked that class. Yeah. Research, I guess, would just be like number of publications. But what good does that do any student at your school? Yeah. Like none. Anyway, there is no direct measure of teaching quality, such as the degree to which a law school equips students with the practical skills needed to be successful lawyers, comma, something bar exams do not, parentheses, yet <laughs> measure. <laughs> <laughs> what the parentheses? This feels like a text chat. There is no direct measure of scholarly productivity or impact, and there is no measure of public service contributions. So this no is one just gives a fuck. Yeah, right. It's like, well, that's not what people are going to law school for. They're going to law school because they need to get a job. 
And scholarly productivity and impact doesn't have anything to do with that. The measure of public service contributions. I mean, wh what? This is this is a, this is the same as a student obsessed with soft factors. But I yeah. but I did volunteer work. Can't that help me get in? Yeah. It's, well, that's, that's nice. because that's exactly what Fagman <laughs> is saying, right? He's yeah. like. Uh, he's like, the people we admit have shitty LSAT and shitty GPA or yes. mediocre LSAT and so mediocre GPA. So he needs to GPA. go to bat for these soft factors. That's what he's doing. Right, right. Okay, so that was his first bullet is that you're, yeah. you fail, you're failing to track our mission elements. Second bullet, failure to properly standardize. What the hell do you mean by that? Well, hmm. the U.S. News Ranking System continues to fail to properly account for the degree to which law schools are differently situated, not just because of varying state bar exam cut scores, but also because the law schools serve distinct student populations, parentheses. Oh, there is no end parentheses on this, by the way. <laughs> oh my God. It's an open parentheses, <laughs> e.g., providing an educational program aimed at helping disadvantaged students succeed in law school or place graduates. Now I think he's got a verb tense problem. Yeah, because it should be placing. Right. It's got to be parallel. Graduates in particularly competitive local employment markets, comma, all things that UC Law SF does well. And I think they, he needed an end parens right there. So it doesn't track... Oh, because Hastings does have a program aimed at helping disadvantaged students succeed in law school. Do they? I mean, look, doing that kind of stuff is good. But my question to you, is that really what you're trying to do? Or are you just admitting students that can now pay full price to your institution? Right. I mean, right. I hate to be that cynical, but. No, but we know that that's true. I mean, black and brown uh, disadvantaged students pay more on average for law school. Yeah. That's a fact. So is that happening at UC Law SF? And if it is, then pretending that you're helping is a little disingenuous. I'd be shocked if it wasn't happening yeah. at that school. I could be wrong. Uh, yep. The rankings, Fegman continues, the rankings presume a comparison of apples to apples when they compare apples to oranges to peaches and so on. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm going to quote a rapper now called Lil Dicky. I don't know okay. if you, I'm sure you have never heard and probably no. the listener. He's like nope. a comedy rapper. Okay. Okay. But there's a hilarious line in one of his songs that just says, why can't fruit be compared? <laughs> like, what is it? Why can't we compare apples to oranges? Yeah. Which do you like better? Apples or oranges? Well, I they're, prefer, um... they're good for different things. Yeah, and, yeah. Like, what do you mean you can't? It's just, it's so stupid that he goes into this. Oh, well, you're just. You know, that's like anytime anybody says anything, you could just go, oh, you're comparing apples to oranges. Yeah, we're different. You know, yeah, it's different. I live oh. in Virginia. Nathan lives in Nevada. So apples yeah. to oranges. Yeah. Consider some of the factors that differentiate law schools in the United States. Colon, Ugh. urban slash rural, private slash public, northeast slash midwest slash south slash west. <laughs> standalone slash part of a law uni large university. Law schools vary on all of these factors and many more, and any formula should account for these differences. So, oh, good luck. <laughs> well, you see the blust, right? It's like he's now he's saying it's impossible to rank the law schools. Yep. Because he's just saying like, well, if you were going to rank them, you would have to consider all this shit that's just so obviously impossible to, to, to rank. You know what he wants to be ranked in is a scale that considers only West, urban, right. 
public schools that, and then, yeah, how, where do we rank there? Right. On the west side of the Bay Bridge. Yeah. Not the east <laughs> side. The west side and of the Bay west, Bridge. And by west, I mean we're number west one. Bay. Number one of the, of the Bay Bridge, <laughs> west of the Bay Bridge, and also north of um, uh, Sunnyvale. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Three, diversity penalty. Oh, he's going to go more into the diversity penalty. Oh, yeah, let's hear about this. By allocating too much weight to standardized test scores, parentheses, LSAT. Oh, which one? Wait, oh, okay, what does LSAT. that stand for? you got to tell me what that stands for. All right. The new ranking methodology reinforces structural inequalities. So just you know, saying that conclusion over and over and over, hoping that it becomes yep. true. What's yep. your evidence for that? How does weight... Weighting standardized test scores reinforces structural inequalities. By the way, you're the exact same guy who, who signed a, that. Yes, yeah. go ahead. Oh, yeah, signed that document, right? With yeah. 60 deans saying, hey, do not remove the LSAT requirement because we are afraid that it's going to hurt, not help, diversity to remove it. Right. So, which, which is it? Is it? <laughs> Does it reinforce a structural inequality or is it a necessary thing to, to ensure to diversity? To break down that structural inequality, right. right? Yeah. Right. That's why it was created, by the way. Well, it's obvious bullshit, but it continues. Because entering metrics correlate with first time bar pass rates, the rankings method doubly penalizes law schools committed to creating a bridge to practice for traditionally disenfranchised populations. So, acknowledging that these metrics are important for bar passage rates, but still insisting that his school is doing a good job even though he's admitting people who can't pass the bar. That's really bizarre. And he's charging full price to these people, you know? I mean, like, they're, they're, you don't get a discount if you don't pass the bar. You don't get your money back if you don't pass the bar. And he's acknowledging yeah. here that if he continues to admit people with worse LSAT and worse GPA, that yeah, these people they are have a struggle risk. to pass the bar. Yeah, a higher risk of not passing. Okay. Huh. He thinks that's a good thing. Yeah. He says, it does not account for the important work of schools that admit students with lower scores and teach them the skills needed to overcome that disadvantage and achieve success as attorneys. Well, if you're doing that, then there wouldn't be this high correlation. And if you were doing that, right, then people would be passing the bar and getting jobs. Yeah. He goes on. So you wouldn't be double penalized. That's the crazy thing. You'd be penalized for not accepting high LSAT scores, but you wouldn't be penalized for the bar passage rates yeah. if you were successful. Well, it's clearly like a defense attorney, right? This is just yeah. trying to, he's just introducing every shred of reasonable doubt that, or every shred yeah. of doubt, hoping that people will find it reasonable. He's just, he's just piling on with every possible confusing, right? Yeah. Argument. Yeah. He says, this is the work required by law schools to add to the diversity that the practicing bar desperately needs to better reflect the clients they serve. The U.S. news methodology penalizes schools like UC Law SF that recruit and admit high potential students with lower test scores to increase equity and opportunity in the legal profession. Look, to be clear, this is a problem that needs to be addressed, but the way that he's talking about it is just confusing. Well... Again, he, he also wanted the LSAT to remain <laughs> part of the admissions. He wanted ABA to require 
school. He signed that letter that would that was arguing that the ABA should continue to require the law school admission test. Yep. And now he's complaining about the law school admission test. Okay. False precision is the next one. Mm. The U.S. News ranking project is premised on the spurious notion that there are meaningful distinctions between schools that can be gleaned based on whether they are a few ranks higher or lower than peer schools. Is Yale better than Harvard? Question mark. It's truly a silly question. Should a student who wants to practice in California pick a law school in Ohio meanly, merely because the Ohio school has a modestly higher U.S. News ranking than does the California school? Question mark. That's an even sillier question. But U.S. News, by assigning a number, a rank, to each school, feeds into the misleading suggestion that its ranking should guide prospective law, law student choice and somehow provides a public service. I, I think we agree with the false precision perception, right? This idea that things are so precise, which is why we have the 2x rule or the 100% rule, whatever you want to call it. That said, the rankings do provide some information. If you're going to a school that's ranked 152 and someone else is going to a school that's ranked 22, um, they're going to have a different experience. Also, <laughs> if this was working out in his favor, then he would absolutely think that people should come from Ohio to go to school in California. If he was outranking some school in Ohio, then yes, he would love that you come to his school. Yeah. I mean, you see, yeah, it's Hastings, not like they deny people saying, oh, you're going to go back and practice in Ohio. Well, don't come here. Yeah. No, they don't advertise. They have long had these pretensions of being a national law school. Yeah. Well, if you're a so-called national law school, you can come to my school and practice in any jurisdiction. Well, then, yeah, you do want people to come from across the country to go to your school. I agree with you. You're a regional law school. No one should go across the country to go to Hastings. That's dumb. I mean, unless you want to live in San Francisco or California. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let me continue. Arbitrary swings is the final bullet. The suggestion that the ranking system makes meaningful distinction is belied by the year-over-year -year volatility in rankings outside the top 20 or 25 law schools. That law schools routinely, even under the old method, experienced swings of 10 or more ranks from one year to the next without any true corresponding change in the fundamentals of their programs of legal education has always been a serious red flag. The recently announced U.S. News methodology changes will result in huge ranking swings for many law schools. Any system that causes a law school's rank to wildly swing from year to year is clearly unhinged from the actual quality of the school's program. I don't think we're going to argue with him on that point. No, we aren't going to argue with him on that point. I do think that the swings draws into question the ranking system. That said, if a school swings up 10 or more points... 10 or more rankings, right? How much of that is arbitrary? How much of that is the school trying to be more selective, such as Wash U, right? And then slowly seeing those, some of that swing, all I'm saying is that some of that swing might reflect efforts and the failure of schools to be selective and thus drop. Yeah, and he is acknowledging here that the top 20, top 25 doesn't change very often. Mm-hmm. When you're a regional law school like Hastings, when you're down there, or sorry, UC San Francisco Law. Wait, U UC, UC law, law San Francisco. Yeah. And you know why they're, I think they're UC Law San Francisco because UC San Francisco is the med is a school. school. 
Yeah. Yeah. And the med school is like, fuck you. You're not UC San Francisco <laughs> law. We're yeah. UC San Francisco. You can yeah. be something else. And so they decided to go with UC law San Francisco. It's so fucking confusing. <laughs> it's so annoying. Yeah. It's uh, the Washington football team. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I agree with you. You know, and th- that like gets back to our 100% rule, right? Or our yep. 2X rule, whatever it is. Yep. Like if you're not double the ranking of another school, then you're basically the same ranking as that school. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And so, the, but the schools in the top 20 or 25 don't really change that often. Yeah. And Fagman's UC Law San Francisco is 51st in the country. There are big swings down there, but you're not swinging up into the top 20 or 25. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that you know, this argument about arbitrary swings is relevant. Yeah, it's relevant for comparing Hastings or sorry, UC Law San Francisco to um, Davis. That's a good argument there. But comparing UC Law San Francisco and Davis to Berkeley, um, the rankings do a fine job of comparing those schools to each other because they show that Berkeley is clearly more prestigious. Anyway, last paragraph. We realize that our decision to decline to submit institutional data to the U.S. news ranking industry is, at this point, mostly a symbolic gesture because U.S. news has vowed to continue ranking law schools using a limited data set, ABA reporting, even if schools like UC Law SF and the other UC law schools that have opted out refuse to otherwise submit data. Well, guess what? You don't get to refuse to submit data to the American Bar Association. Yep. You know, maybe what's going to happen from all this is that the ABA is going to have to clean up its 509s a little bit. Like I was just might... thinking the exact same thing because U.S. News is this, this is a business. They don't want fucking like, oh, you have four students in your entire class. OK, your data is clearly wrong. Maybe this will clean that all up. Make it yeah, easier and for maybe the rest of us. when well, and when we're trying to figure out what's going on with these schools, 509s, maybe we should draw that to the attention of U.S. News. Just say, hey, can you help us out? <laughs> yeah, we're trying to figure this out. This 509 data seems wrong. Yeah. But, says Fagman, at least until more significant changes are made to the formula, we plan to opt out of what we consider to be a misleading measure of law school quality. That's from David L. Fagman, Chancellor and Dean, William B. Lockhart, Professor of Law, and John F. Diggardy, Distinguished Professor of Law at the UC California no, you got to read the whole title. Sorry, at the University of California College of the Law, San Francisco. Okay. He's a he's a true master of bullshit. I mean, it really is amazing. <laughs> They're dropping out of the rankings, just like all these other schools are dropping out of the rankings. Well, the, sorry, again, they are not dropping out of the rankings. They are no longer going to fill out the survey that U.S. News sends them. So they're going dark on U.S. News. But U.S. News is going to still rank them based on the ABA data, which includes LSAT and GPA, which was already the most important factor in the rankings anyway. Hey, Nathan, this is totally unimportant, but I am curious. What's the difference between a chancellor and the dean? So the dean, we hear about that all the time at law schools. Do you know what the chancellor title means? Uh, I have no idea. No. I know that in Secret Hitler, if you elect... Hitler Chancellor, you lose the game. That's a what kind of game is that? Is that a board game? Secret Hitler is a card game. It's a yeah, it's a it's a like a party game 
where oh, okay. some, yeah, most people are liberals and there's some conservatives and then there's like one guy who's Hitler. And then it's like a politicking game around the table. You're trying to figure out who Hitler is and not elect mm. Hitler chancellor. Because mm. if you do, then the fascists win. Oh, that's not good. Okay. Yeah. I have no idea what the chancellor does at University of California College of the Law, San Francisco. I don't know. He seems like he's in charge. Yep. <laughs> he's got two titles. <laughs> and he doesn't seem like he has any like people willing to say no to him in his vicinity. Yeah. I could be wrong about that. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. Wrap it up there. Yeah. Don't forget to come to our free classes. We got all kinds of free classes. Just go to lsatdemon.com and sign up for a free account and you should be able to see all of those classes. But we got uh, a couple exciting ones coming up. On Thursday, January 26th, there's a special Logic Games class from Matt Dumont. Okay. Uh, it's going to be talking about this technique that we sometimes use called Circle Slash. So Circle Slash Logic Games Bootcamp with Matt on Thursday, January 26th, 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. Next free class from me is on Thursday, February 9th called Why You Don't Need an LSAT Tutor. Um, most LSAT tutors out there are wildly overpriced and you don't need it. There's easier, better ways. So I hope you'll come to my class and learn how to save some money. LSAT.link forward slash Nathan for all my classes. LSATdemon.com forward slash classes for all of our classes. Hope to see you there. Yeah. Be LSAT famous. Ask us questions or share news with us at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, you can email help at LSATdemon.com. Please check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode 385 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. 